Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We enter a new chapter, a new section of this wonderful epistle as Paul begins to bring this epistle to a close. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and our focus text this morning will be verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. If you're interested, you can find the sermon outline on page 3 of your bulletin if you would like to uh, take notes on the following page and follow along. Let's go before the Lord and ask His blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come now as we open Your Word, desiring Your Spirit's work in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we know that we need You. We cannot understand your word uh, in one or a little bit, Lord, uh, without the work of your spirit in us. And so, Lord, we pray, open our hearts, open our minds and our understanding to see the wonderful truth and to see our Lord Jesus Christ and his person and work for us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the holy, the inspired, the inerrant and infallible Word of God, written for you and for me today. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren, at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's Word, and may He add His blessing to the reading of His Word to us. Well, beloved, in the many ways that God used Paul to be helpful to the church in Corinth, and more broadly, to churches all around the world, thus far he has done so through addressing divisions in the Corinthian congregation, along with moral and ethical problems regarding sexual immorality and lawsuits in the church, for example. 
God also used Paul to provide good biblical counsel in response to the questions that the saints raised in the letter that they sent to him. Paul guided the Corinthians in the ways of unity and godliness in marriage and divorce, regarding food offered to idols, regarding head coverings and the Lord's Supper, as well as important matters regarding love worked out in life. And love worked out in fellowship and worship. One of the big focuses Paul has spent a good portion of his time addressing has been around decency and good order in worship. Paul also pressed the essential presence of the peace of Christ in and amongst the members of the body in our daily walk, along with the fruit of such peace being evident in the congregation as we gather together for worship. Right? This had very practical application to the Corinthian body, but it's had beautiful application to us as a church today as well, hasn't it? And this fruit is seen in good order flourishing in the church. And why? Because Christ-centered, God-honoring, biblical worship stands upon the character and command of God. God is the God of peace, not confusion. And Corinth really needed to hear this and make some serious changes. Many churches here today do as well. And so as Paul continues in his letter, he transitions now to another matter that the Corinthians asked him about, namely the integrity of the gospel as it focuses on the doctrine of the resurrection. And what we will learn much about in chapter 15, it's another rich chapter, as all of these chapters have been, but what we will learn much about in chapter 15 is that Christ's resurrection is essential. And His resurrection gives us certainty and confidence about our resurrection. And so we begin considering uh, this very message under three headings this morning. The gospel preached, received, and stood upon in verses 1 and 2. The death and resurrection and the appearance of Christ in verses 3 through 7. And the work of grace in preachers and believers in verses 8 through 11. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 as Paul begins to talk to them about the gospel being preached and received and stood upon. He says, moreover, brethren, in other words, I've spoken to you about many things here, beloved, but but here now, moreover, let us get to a very serious and important doctrinal matter. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and and in which you stand, by which you also are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. My friends, it's clear as Paul responds to the Corinthians' questions regarding the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, that they had fallen into error on this subject as well. The resurrection of the dead on the last day is truly understood through faith. And it was therefore denied and spoken against by many philosophers and worldly wise men in Corinth. 
And it appears that the Corinthians in the church had gotten sucked into some of their notions. And we'll consider even more of this next week in verse 12. But remember that Paul had encountered the philosophers in Athens in Acts 17 regarding this very doctrine, didn't he? In Acts 17, verses 16 through 18, you can turn with me there if you'd like. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, we read there, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily, notice, with those who happened to be there. And then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. And why did they say that? Note, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. My friends, the resurrection being such an important and essential doctrine, as Paul took great care in preaching to the men of Athens here, he takes great care in preaching to the Corinthians, aligning them and even us today in the truth. You're a bit off, you're a bit in error, you've been sucked into some of these false doctrines regarding the resurrection of the dead, and let me help you and correct you in this. And so Paul knew exactly where he needed to start. He knew exactly where the foundation needed to be laid. And note the four action words that Paul states regarding the gospel here in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 15. First, he says the gospel was preached to them. The Apostle Paul previously declared, and he he previously preached, he announced the good news of Jesus Christ to them in their ears and to their hearts. And these words that he wrote here, they weren't new words. They weren't new words that the Corinthians had never heard before. No, it was the same true, pure message of Jesus Christ and His person and work for sinners. Paul pointed them back to the foundation. Remember what Paul said in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Beloved, the saints didn't stumble upon this message on their own. It was declared and preached to them by this very apostle that was sent from God. That was sent from God with the Word of God about the Son of God who was crucified and rose again from the grave. And further, as the Corinthians needed correction regarding the doctrine of the resurrection, 
They needed to see and understand that it is grounded in the gospel. The doctrine of the resurrection is grounded in the gospel. For the resurrection shows that Christ really died. The resurrection shows that Christ really died. There is a resurrection because there was a death. A real sacrifice to make satisfaction for God's justice and to bring mercy and grace for all believers in Jesus. If you don't have the resurrection, you don't have the gospel. The death and resurrection of Christ is at the foundation of Christianity. Corinth needed to grasp that and not miss it, and so do we. Because in many ways, beloved, things haven't changed over the centuries and in the world today. There are many who at the very least would twist, and there are are many who would also deny the resurrection. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 89, says this. It helps us. How is the Word made effectual to salvation? The answer is this. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Indeed, keep this in mind even as you reflect back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and what he said there. What was happening when the Word of God was being preached and proclaimed within the hearing and within the understanding of the body of believers and even within the hearing of any unbelievers that were present in and amongst the body when that Word was preached, what was happening? They were convinced. (laughs) They were changed. The Lord was saving people in their midst because they could hear, they could understand, and they believed by His saving grace the truth of the gospel. And so Paul preached, he said, and the people received it. They need to remember that. Maybe some of them had forgotten that. They received it. The message given was the message taken and received in the hearts and the minds of believers. We're reminded of how the free offer of the gospel goes forth far and wide into the ears of many. And yet only some, only God's chosen people will be converted and receive it and stand upon it. And that's exactly what he says next, isn't it? The third action word is what? That they received it and stood upon it. It's one thing to receive... But it's another thing, even connected and complementary, it's another thing to stand upon that which is received. Those who believe the good news of Jesus Christ, those who trust in Christ and His finished work, are also those who are willing to plant their flag. They're also those who are willing to stand with confidence, by faith, in the truth of it, and to defend that truth against those who would contradict Paul fourthly said that it was the message and the truth by which they were saved. They believed the message preached. They believed the message preached in the person and work of Jesus Christ 
was that by which they were saved. Indeed, in the resurrection of Christ, heaven is open to us. And that was part of that glorious message and indeed continues to be. Notice that Paul goes on to say that this is true of their salvation if they held fast to the word preached. Beloved, like the churches in Galatia, Corinth needed to guard against the temptation to turn. The temptation to be lured, to follow the Pied Piper, to go a different direction from that foundation which had been laid. Paul wrote the churches in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and he said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Beloved, persevering and standing in the truth of the gospel is evidence of the sincere faith of the believer. We see this in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Indeed, there is no salvation in his name, but upon the belief of him and his person and his death and his resurrection. For otherwise, Paul told Corinth, unless you believed in vain, My friends, denying the resurrection of Christ makes our faith useless. useless. And Paul's going to expand on this idea and truth in the coming verses, which we'll consider in the coming weeks. How can God's people have confidence that what Paul preached was true? That it really happened? Well, this is really where Paul goes next, isn't it? Paul goes on to detail the historic facts of the matter. This is what I preached. This is what I proclaimed. But how do you know that this really happened? Let me give you evidence. Let me give you proof and remind you of that. He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried... And that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You know, Paul's words here should remind us of what he said in his opening words in the institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.23, shouldn't they? What did he say there? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. We hear something similar here in verse 3, don't we? See how Paul proclaims his own receipt of the gospel here. Paul didn't preach a message to the people that he himself hadn't already received. This wasn't something that was foreign to Paul that he was told would be good for other people to hear. No, Paul had heard. He had received. He had believed. He was standing upon this very truth and he was called to go forth and to proclaim it to others. He proclaimed that which he had also received. And notice how Paul begins his proof of the truth of what both he and the saints believe by pointing us to the inspired and errant and infallible Word of God. 
Beloved, the word of the cross originates with God. It's his wisdom. The testimony of the living God and his holy word declares the substitutionary death of Christ to atone for the sins of his people along with his burial and the resurrection as the fulfillment of the Old Testament message. And these two historic facts of the gospel were also verified. Christ's burial was verification of his death. And verification of his resurrection was wonderfully made in God's sovereign providence and will, wonderfully made, very clearly made, through eyewitness sightings. Look at verses 5 through 7. And that he was seen by Cephas, or otherwise Peter, And then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. This, This great body of witnesses here. And Paul's saying here, by the way, Corinth, keep in mind that many of this large group of people who saw him, many of them are still alive. You could still go and ask him what they saw, if you could contact them. But he also says in verse 7, after that he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. You know, this is one of the passages that I encourage you to commit to memory for the proof of the death and the resurrection of Christ. For there are many today who still deny the death and resurrection of Christ. And yet, here is undeniable proof. And if anyone were to claim that Peter or James or or even the twelve were just having some personal hallucinations or something of that type of sort, his being seen by 500 at once and even some that the people of that time could even go and still talk to That's strong evidence. And though Paul didn't see Christ during Christ's earthly ministry or during his post-resurrection appearances, he, he did indeed see the resurrected Christ, didn't he? This is where he goes next. In verse 8 he says, Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Paul wasn't one who was saying, I am solely trusting on the eyewitness accounts and the reports of others, and that is strong enough. But even I've seen him. Hear my words, hear my own testimony. And when did Paul see Jesus? Well, it was on the road to Damascus. When Christ appeared to him in his resurrected glory, we see this in Acts chapter 9. And note how Paul refers to himself here in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 15 as one born out of due time, or literally, one stillborn. It's an interesting word to use. Paul in part says this because of his sudden conversion on that road to Damascus. And also because of what he explains in verse 9 when he says, For I am least of the apostles 
who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. See Paul's words here, his boldness by the Spirit in that he wasn't concerned. He had defended his apostolic authority earlier in the epistle several times. We know that there were many in the Corinthian church that had that on the attack and they were trying to dismiss and discredit him. But he comes here and he says, he says something that you might think, well, hey, Paul, that's probably not something you should lead with. You shouldn't be saying this right here because you're just going to give a foot in the door for those naysayers in Corinth who don't think that you have a legitimate apostleship. But Paul is wise under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say this very thing for a very rich purpose. He says he was one born out of due time. He was like a stillborn because of his conversion, but also because he lacked the worthiness of even being an apostle of Christ because what did he do in his past life? He persecuted the church. He persecuted the church. Paul's past prior to his conversion was full of him having great zeal, but his great zeal wasn't for Christ. It was against Christ and therefore against his people. And he was going and hauling off people to jail. He he was involved with murderous things. For many reasons, Paul thought about and asked the question, Why me, Lord? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. But beloved, the glorious truth is is that Jesus is. And His saving a sinner like Paul in His perfect timing on that road to Damascus shows forth His amazing grace. It could take a murderer and a persecutor like Paul And he could change his life. And he could truly rescue him and call him to turn completely around and to not persecute his church, but to love his church. And why? Because he no longer hated Christ. He loved Christ. He saw the resurrected Christ. And the resurrected Christ changed his life. Paul taught Timothy about his past. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12-13a, through 13a, when he says this, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because He counted me faithful. Not because He found Him faithful. There was no worthiness or worth in Paul. It's all of Christ. He counted Him faithful. Putting me, Paul said, into ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. And so, beloved, despite who Paul was and all that he had done, the Lord Jesus, out of his great love and mercy, saved Paul. Christ converted him suddenly on the road to Damascus and called him to serve his Lord as one of the most influential in ministering to his church, especially to the Gentiles. Beloved, you may be sitting here in these chairs this morning thinking and wondering, why would, why would God 
save someone like you. For you are a great sinner. You have done very wrong things, maybe even very heinous things. Maybe you would say, well, I don't necessarily rise to the murderous standing that Paul did in his actions or his thoughts. But I know that I am a miserable sinner and a lawbreaker. Why would God save someone like me? Praise the Lord for Christ and His saving grace. That you belong to Him. That He chose you from before the foundation of the world to be Him, to be His. That He would save you in time. And He would turn your life around just like He did Paul. And that similar to Paul, you could have the same thankfulness in your heart, the heartfelt, deep thankfulness that He counts you faithful because of Christ and His righteousness that has been placed on your account. Your sins have been paid for. Your sins have been atoned for as Christ did so enduring the eternal and infinite wrath of the living God upon himself. And indeed, we see in that gospel message then the wonderful joy that we can have as redeemed sinners, even as we consider this wonderful doctrine of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ that Paul is setting the foundation for here, the resurrection of the dead that's going to be built upon here. We have such wonderful joy and hope in Jesus. We have such wonderful joy and thankfulness in our hearts. Because we were unworthy, we are unworthy, but yet He loves us and He is determined to redeem us for His glory. And so Paul could and did joyfully proclaim the saving grace of God in his life. And he says this in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, right? And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. See, interwoven in this testimony of Paul, that it is all of God, it is all of His saving grace. God used him in marvelous ways in the church and to bless His people and to spread the gospel, to see sinners converted and brought to Christ. He used Paul in these ways, but it had nothing to do with Paul. It had everything to do with Christ working through Paul by His grace. It's not I. By His grace, I am what I am. Praise the Lord. But it's all of Him. Ah, the work of grace and divine grace in the heart and lives of both the preacher and the believer. I'm delivering to you that which I have received. Praising the Lord for it, Paul says. Praying that he would use it in your heart. Paul knew that he was who he was as a servant of Christ, because of Christ, by the grace of God. 
And God's grace was active and at work in Paul by the Holy Spirit. None of his labor was of him. It was all of grace. The sins of his past life were, were no reason for any of the saints in Corinth or anybody today to reject his message. For indeed, where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. And he closes with verse 11 in this portion. He says, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul preached, and he continues to preach. He proclaimed it into their ears and to their hearts in the past. You've heard this message before. You received it. You believed it. You stood upon it, Corinthians. He says, so we preach, present tense, and so you believed, past tense. Paul was a redeemed sinner preaching the pure message of the crucified and risen Christ. The saints had received it and believed it, and they needed to continue to stand upon it. They needed to come back into alignment with the truth and the purity of it. They needed to uh, stand on and proclaim the resurrection as a part of that glorious gospel message. I'll leave you with this this morning. Have you received the gospel that has been preached to you? Have you received it lovingly? Have you received it and believe it? To receive it and believe it means that you see and know Jesus Christ and and what He has done and you trust in Him for your full salvation. If you were a Christian, having received it and believe it, you know and you take joy in the gospel promise of believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you're a Christian, you have more than just the forgiveness of your sins. You have the risen Savior. You have eternal life with Him. You have the certainty of the glorious resurrection of your body when Christ returns. This is the wonderful good news that you have received. And therefore, beloved, I encourage you all the more to stand and to continue to stand in and for the truth of the gospel of Christ. Like Paul, knowing the grace of God towards and at work in you to do so and praising Him for it. For we are called to do this. Don't let anyone steer you off course or to convince you that you need to follow another gospel. Like Paul, you are far from worthy. And yet you are a recipient of divine love and grace. Stand upon and proclaim not only the historic reality, but faith's reality in the truth of the resurrection of Christ, as well as the certainty that believers, therefore, have the resurrection of the body and will when uh, in that time that is to come on that last day. And stand for the gospel and the resurrection. Be committed to do so, beloved. There are many things within and without that are against you to do so. But there is also Christ. 
and the work of the Spirit who dwells in and is at work within you, and they are far greater. He and his sovereign work and will within you, he will be gracious to you and cause you to stand, endeavor to do so by his grace, beloved. To God be the glory and praise him for his word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, Your Word. We thank You for the reality of Jesus Christ who lived, who suffered, who died, and rose again to save us from our sin, to save us from hell and condemnation. O Lord, we praise You for who You are, Lord Jesus, and Your work. May we stand in the truth. May we not turn from it, Lord. But may we proclaim it from the rooftops in its purity and in its power by your will and work. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.